Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. So thank you very much, Daniel, for taking the time to join me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thank you, Fergal, for having me on. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Excellent. So um, I am very interested to talk to you about the, some of the research you've done um, recently, uh, your book on climate change, capitalism, and corporations, and get some of your thoughts on the role of corporates in dealing with major environmental issues, particularly climate change, but also more generally. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and uh, what you do? All right. So my, my background is firmly in social sciences, so I'm not a climate change scientist. Uh, I, I study corporations. I've been working in business schools for the last 10 years or so around how corporations respond to climate change. So that is my particular focus is looking at corporations, how they engage both internally in looking at their own practices in trying to be more uh, environmental friendly or more environmentally efficient, but also how they work in, in, the, in the public sphere in trying to influence um, societies to, to react or respond to climate change in particular ways. Right, right. Now, climate change is clearly uh, dominant, a dominant environmental challenge and probably reflects uh, similar kind of trends with respect to other environmental questions as well. Um, but it is uh, overarching uh, as the, the one which is on, I guess, everyone's radar and at the moment. Now, um, you, you did some research recently uh, on the behaviour of uh, a number of large Australian corporates, I think. Their response to climate change changed over time and the various different phases. And uh, unfortunately, in the end, seemed to fade away. Can you talk a little bit about what you were looking at uh, doing this research and what you found out? Yeah, so with my co-author, Chris Wright, at the University of Sydney, we try to understand how corporations engage with climate change, but doing this by talking to corporations. So while the book is mainly or mainly focused around uh, four or five industries, we, we talk to around 100 sustainability managers or managers in, in different uh, global corporations and uh, Australian large Australian corporations. These are corporations who have well-established sustainability agendas or CSR departments, uh, have clear strategies in place, policies in place, in trying to do uh, their best in terms of responding to climate change. And we found that when we met these sustainability managers, they were often what we perhaps can refer to as greenies, uh, well, well read up on, on different aspects surrounding sustainability as well as climate change, and willing and really willing to act on this and thinking it is important. So that we can see there's a lot of motivation and drive. And many corporations use this also to motivate, motivate the workforce. So they have green armies or CSR teams or sustainability teams to have green days and stuff like that to get, to get the workforce engaged in what they seem as an important issue. So And often there's a, perhaps a CEO who leads this initiative, say a new CEO comes in, uh, maybe a firm believing in climate change and think this is important, and starting a, a range of new initiatives. And then, then they have policies to, to back this up. So within each of statements, there also often comes, you know, they're trying to, to walk the talk in establishing new sustainability practices, often around recycling, energy efficiency and stuff like that. But there is always a moment in time when the, the sustainability agenda clashes with the main motive of any business, that is to make money. So when, when there's always that time when the climate change initiative, sustainability initiative, is more costly than it is profitable. And as soon as it doesn't display that uh, uh, business case, which it often doesn't. I mean, some of these uh, uh, some of these acts we need to do to stop climate change is going to be expensive. So when that business case is not uphold, they seem to wean off and find other excuses and other discourses of rationale to justify why they're not doing climate change. And this can happen over ranges. Say they have a, a, a prof, low profit year or not, not growing that particular year, then they go back to basics and say, look, climate change and all that is all really good. When it's good time, in bad times, we need to go back to basics. And back to basics is never really climate change sustainability for most corporations. It's rather to make, make money and grow. 
So, and, so this is just one example of them when, when they start weaning off. And then, but that, that doesn't mean it can't happen again. A new CEO come come around and say, look, climate change is really important. We need to do something about it. And off they go again. But eventually, again, it's going to lead to they, 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 there's going to be a cost associated with being trying to be greener. And since they can't justify uh, the, the initiatives anymore, they try to use other languages to, to scale back on this. They often translate climate change into stuff that they are more comfortable with. So, for example, we have seen in many, many corporations how sustainability as a green issue over time get translated to the sustainability of the corporation. That is, the environmental or green concern get translated into long-term profit concern. Yes, yes. Now, to what extent is this a uniquely Australian phenomenon? <laughs> oh, sorry, we, we don't think this is uniquely Australian at all. Uh, so these are big Australian corporations, and one of the big corporations is not an Australian original corporation. They have a big operation in Australia, but they're US-based mainly. And a lot of the corporations we spoke to while we are based in Australia has, has global, uh, global headquarters outside Australia. Right. Now, this is a pretty depressing finding. How uh, emblematic uh, were the companies that you studied? How widespread do you think this is? And what what are some of the factors that come into play here? Because clearly the corporation, I mean, it, it, complex topic. There are a lot of uh, layers to this. At the heart of it, you're talking about their desire and their need uh, to, to make profits uh, and and investors requirement that they do so um there, there are other stakeholders as well uh can you talk a little bit about how you saw that uh, their influence of the different stakeholders and what happened what was driving this yeah i mean as as as, as consumers uh, and and you know we also have green green groups as like greenpeace and uh, friends of the earth and so on uh, and consumers put pressure on these corporations often to start engaging with these issues uh, so, and that also can mean, at times, it turns out me to be more to be a marketing ploy than uh, than um, a real sustainability or climate change agenda that really changes the the the, the drive of the corporation. And we also know that these things goes in cycle in terms of how me- much media these corporations get. So, remember, you remember the Volkswagen diesel scandal. Which really, if there was a social contract between the the consumer and, and Volkswagen, Volkswagen should not make so much money in the following year. That you know, there is no social contract. Uh, one can rather talk about uh, uh, sort of a, a, an idea of a social contract, a, a simulacra in that sense. But really, as a consumers, more over largely, we, we don't really consider. And the green concerns more than any other. So that social contract is perhaps a bit overstated in that corporations can obviously behave quite badly without any anyone reacting uh, uh, in long term. Of course, there would be a short-term share drop price, uh, but over the long term, even recent scandals doesn't seem to affect the business so much, Volkswagen being one, uh, BP being another, and we have also other fossil fuel over history, but, you know, have had problems surrounding sustainability, which doesn't, doesn't seem to impact much of the long-term growth or profit. Yes, right. Well, you touched on a few interesting points there, now, the social contract. But you've also, I guess, highlighted this question at the heart of it, which is this question about profitability. And are you suggesting that sustainability is not, cannot be or, or, or and largely is not a, a profitable activity for corporations. I know there's been research and I'm sure you're familiar with in LBS and in Harvard and George Serafim and others that seems to suggest that sustainability is profitable for the corporation and profitable for stake for, for shareholders as well. And we can get on to the role of investors and some of the changes that are taking place there. But are you saying that you just think that that's not true. That it's it it, it, it might be uh, in a couple of isolated cases, but fundamentally, it's not the case. I, I guess to answer the question, we need to define sustainability. Because if you suggest that it's more profitable for corporations to be more energy efficient, it's obvious. If you suggest that it's more profitable for corporations to uh, communicate uh, uh, green concerns to the consumer, of course, the consumer wants to hear that. However, I don't think continuous growth, growth and continuous increased profit margins is 
compatible with a, with a green type of sustainability where we take into account the, 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 pla the planetary boundaries we have to live within. Right, because I guess there's a, a big debate here, isn't it, at the heart of this uh, sustainability of environmentalism and is this question of green growth and, you know, whether green growth is a contradiction in terms, whether, um, you know, it, it's the source of the problem, that growth is the source of the problem. Um, and there are those who would argue that, you know, the scale of the challenges that we face and the time frame in which we need to uh, make changes suggests that we require major changes we require innovation we require new technologies and they will have a they they can have a role and they will have a role to play and corporations are very good at doing that and you can just see that you know uh, new you see changes in the in the, the motor industry you can see changes in solar power you can see you know in many different niches many different industries indeed there are uh, huge growth opportunities associated with um, sustainability was so associated with climate change. You don't think so? No, um, I, I, I don't, I'm not disputing what you're saying. Of course, there is fantastic growth opportunities in new technology and new innovation. Uh, there is clearly a market to to make sure that we can respond better, perhaps even to than what you're doing. But for me, there's there's absolutely not a. a uh, that for me, it's absolutely a contradiction between growth uh, and innovation technology and climate change. So what we're doing with this language is that we are making sure that we really don't have to change anything. Because if you believe in new technology, innovation, growth opportunity, we don't really need to change anything. And if you look at the emissions, they are still going up. And we've been talking about this growth and new technology innovation for a couple of decades now. And the emissions are still growing up. So for me we need to start thinking completely different. We need an absolute radical change in how we organize us, how we identify our society, uh, who we are as human beings, uh, who we are in relation to uh, social, in, in relation to other people. There's, there's no way we can go on. Because even if we come up with really good new technology and, um, and wind and renewables and solar, the problem is that these industries doesn't catch up because the growth imperative is so important that even if we come up with new technologies in, in renewables, they're still not addressing the problem of fossil fuel. Right, well, I mean, clearly the question of fossil fuel is, is clearly a, um, another a, a specific uh, one which we can maybe touch on um, a little bit. Um, but, so, yeah, clearly there's a difference between saying corporations are the solution and saying corporations can be part of the solution and some corporations can contribute to helping and in a similar way it's surely we can hold the idea that corporations can have a have a role to play without saying that 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 there there doesn't also need to be regulation yes i mean of course uh, i think I'm, I'm definitely for some uh, for plurality here and, and i guess part of the problem is that we only basically look, look for to normal corporate solutions we look to to market mechanism we look, we look to new technology we look for innovation and and this for me is absolutely not enough uh, there's no chance that the corporations with their short-term thinking can address a complexity like climate change. For me, that's impossible for them. Obviously, we they have an important role to play in making sure that the transition is, is working and, and I prefer corporations to be less unsustainable than, uh, than anything else. But at the moment, we seem to put almost all our faith in corporation. And I think that is a catastrophe in, term, uh, in terms of uh, being able to act on climate change. At the heart of this, are, are, what, how do you envisage what kind of organizational form would be appropriate to deal with the kind of questions that we're looking at? Oh, that's, that's, that's a fantastic question. Uh, and I, I guess that requires some imagination and, and looking forward and looking for what kind of organization do we need in society to deal with kind of problems like this. Uh, no doubt we need uh, stronger governments. Um, and with stronger government, I'm not suggesting sort of a strong-handed government in the classical terms. I'm, I'm meaning a stronger government where we can see perhaps a Pollyannian double movement where, 
when corporations are eating into quite a lot of civil society, we used to see a swing back through government regulation. So an example would be uh, in the 17th in the US, after Rachel Carson's book, uh, 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 The Silent Spring, we saw how EPA was funded, uh, how uh, a range of different legislation came into play in the US. Similar movement happened all over the Euro Europe in, around the 1780s. However, after, since then, we can also see how a lot of these legislations has been, uh, uh, has been dissolved or disappeared. Uh, and a lot of us recognize, I think, and, and this is, I don't think, a, a big statement, is that corporations now has been uh, taking over quite a lot of civil society functions and there seems to be a lack of legislation around, around corporations, perhaps illustrated through the financial crisis. But what we're not seeing at this time around, so we have the same problem, a lot of people recognize, wait a second, this is not right, but they seem to have a little bit much, too much power. Well, we're not seeing this time around, but that we saw in the 70s and 80s, we're not seeing the, the government stepping back in and in, increasing legislation around uh, a lot of these things. Rather, we're trusting the, the corporations to do it themselves. So we say, look, we want you to voluntarily do this, we want you to report on this, uh, and we see also that corporations continue to fight this. It doesn't matter what area of, of sustainability, social environment, uh, you know, Coca-Cola will fight higher sugar tax. Um, the tobacco companies did fight any, any, any legislation around cigarettes. The fossil fuel is desperately fighting anything, uh, minimizing their profit around fossil fuel. Uh, so having the fossil fuel to fund part of the Paris, uh, Paris uh, meeting and having them at the table in discussing energy solutions, for me is a bit problematic in that this will stop the double movement we need. We need 80% of fossil fuels to stay in, in the ground. And we don't need Shell and BP to sit on the table discuss, discussing energy solutions. Right. That's an interesting uh, question, isn't it? The degree to which they can be part of the solution. They, they should be at the table, shouldn't they? The question becomes how much power should they have at the table? Well, yes and no. I See, I'm not sure they should be at the table uh, in the sense of we have experts, uh, and you have to spoken to many of them outside the business sector, who know quite a lot about this. We have universities full of fantastic researchers uh, with pretty good solutions. We have uh, politicians, we have policy uh, uh, makers, we have bureaucrats, we have good handle of this. It didn't used to be that we invited the, the, the the company, the corporation that we discussed into this discussion. Of course, they should have a say, but at, maybe not at the table, though, uh, because they come with a particular narrow interest that the rest of the stakeholders may not. Right, right. Uh, that's that's that, that that makes a lot of sense. There is this question, I suppose. You know, how fit for purpose are corporations to deal with the kind of questions that we're talking about here? I mean, there's been uh, quite strong momentum in the the B cores in America and, um, and 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 things like that. But it, at the heart of it, if you are saying that measuring profits, and again, this is something which is in a, a bit of a contested territory as well. I think in in so far as uh, you know, researchers in America now have shown that this is is the 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 idea of fiduciary responsibility to increase profits is not actually legally uh, valid, um, and there are lots of questions around that, um, and yet it's still held to be so. And even if not with respect to the corporation, it is with respect to the investors that the vest investors have a fiduciary responsibility, you know, and, and that becomes potentially a break on the kind of things that corporations can do. So, right. And at the heart of this, clearly, is this question of growth, uh, yes. growth and growth and uh, in output, growth and profits, investors desire for growth and profits. Now, we're seeing some kinds of changes here going on. Now, how, how deep do you think these changes are? I mean, every day we seem to be seeing, you know, new, we've just seen uh, legal in general in the UK, it's put, it's, it's excluding, it's the largest in the UK, largest fund manager, one of the largest in Europe, excluding companies that are not responding on climate change. 
you know, we've seen uh, Larry Fink from, uh, you know, BlackRock contacting uh, corporates. We've seen rising uh, groups of investors supporting ESG. And and there do seem to be uh, strong evidence that investors are taking into account uh, certainly the risks side of the equation, whether or not they're looking at the opportunities or not. So maybe investors are starting to look at things differently. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and, and this is for me, is a quite tricky question. For on the one hand, we can see sustainability as, uh, as you know, this is this is an important step. Uh, we want, if the corporation want to, uh, if the investor want to have less risk in their portfolio, they want uh, uh, corporations who are less risky. And climate change is, of course, uh, a, a big risk for society and all corporations. So on one hand, you can say all these quite small measures of. Uh, demanding better sustainability from corporation is, is great because then maybe we can hold corporation to account. We can then say, look, in your, in your sustainability report or in your annual report, you said this and you're not doing that. Therefore, we're not going to invest in you or we, we're not going to buy your products. So, so in that sense, we can see all these developments as positive. And in any case, I think we should. However, there's also this risk with, by doing all these minor things, that we doesn't really have much an effect. We are delaying the radical responses that's actually needed. So this stops us from thinking more imaginarily in terms of what can we can do. How can we organize ourselves different? What can we really do to drastically reduce uh, our society's emissions or the global emissions? So in that sense, one can also see this as a delay response. It's making sure that we actually don't have time to do anything. Right. Uh, again, I suppose the question is, is that necessarily the case? Can you not have them both at the same time? And to what extent does it quite to what to what extent does this crowd out, as it were, other ideas, more imaginative ideas? There are all kinds of organizations, all kinds of radical thinking, different, you know, growing. I guess it's the question as well about the the, 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 the role of government and the degree to which uh, various different governments also are willing to regulate, are willing to 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 consider um new radical ways of doing things because fundamentally that's what we're going to need yes i agree and i, I mean we, i've done a little bit uh, study around the, the the fracking discussion in the uk you can see how both uh, theresa may and the previous cameron arguing all going all out for shale and part of the argument is to address climate change so they're saying uh, shale gas is less uh, unsustainable than, than coal. So in that sense, you know, you see Tiddler Center and this uh, research arguing, yes, but that also makes sure that we don't invest in, in in renewables. So you can actually see argument suggesting that this kind of initiative are crowding out alternatives. Uh, we also see there's hardly no Western liberal democracy today arguing for any alternative than market solutions. So while you're saying there are radical alternatives, they're not really realistic because they're not seen as, as, as doable. And part of that is not necessarily that they are not doable, it's that our frame in society is so strong towards continue what we're doing that any alternative seems ridiculous. So the Paris Agreement doesn't give you confidence? Absolutely not. If every every country in submitting to uh, ratifying the Paris Agreement, say now even if U.S. stayed in it, if every country did what they promised in the Paris Agreement, you would still look for a four degree warming, because the Paris Agreement is based on scenarios where we come up with new technology, innovation, and so on. Yes, well, these uh, uh, well, they're at the heart of all of the climate models, really, aren't they? Uh, and I, I think there was actually a a, a conference uh, a couple of weeks ago in Sweden on on new uh, nets. Is that what they're called? Uh, negative emissions technologies, which are, um, uh, I guess, at the heart of a lot of this uh, optimis- optimism. Uh, well, such such as it is about the possibility of of dealing with with, with climate change. So. Um, 
again, um, we're looking at fairly uh, short time frames. Uh, I just want to quickly uh, talk about again the, the the this question of of uh, corporate corporates and capital, um, because it's it's clear that uh, increasingly, you know, large organisations, multilateral organisations, or like the World Bank, UNESCO, the UN, they're all looking to partner with corporations. They're all looking for capital. They're all looking to to for, to, to to find new ways of doing things. So there is a capital shortage. The sums of money uh, required to you know hit hit hit, hit various uh, the SDGs things like that. They're eye eye popping large sums of money. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, we we see this. Um uh, we even see NGOs in, engaging in these type of collaborations. Uh, partly, uh, this is, of course, uh, understanding this is a societal or global problem. We need all actors to be involved. Uh, and uh, in one hand, we can see that as a positive, you know, that almost everyone in society agreed this is a, a global challenge that we need to address. We need all actors to dig in. We need all actors to come up with the best type of solutions. The, the problem, I, I guess, with inviting corporations is that they may have particular favored solution in, in mind. And that is, of course, solutions that allow them to make money and grow. And with this, I'm not saying that individual CEOs or individual sustainability managers are not concerned about climate change and trying to be devious. Absolutely not. Almost everyone we speak to is sincerely worried about this. However, within capitalists is a particular form of system that we had invented for corporations to make money. And that is when eventually what these corporations will need to do to survive. And this is fine. This is perfect. This is why we constructed the form of corporation to make money, to take risks for us. And now I think that there's problematic in inviting them on equal basis uh, with collaborations, with government, because they have their particular interest, with which it may not necessarily be in line with what the planet demands from us. Yes, there the are many related uh, important questions there. I, and I suppose at the heart of this also is this the talk about what you measure and what you get and what what the outcomes are. Um, and I would like to just maybe uh, come back to the, that fundamental research you did. Um, well, just the one you published in the Academy of Management. Um, um, yeah, so... With respect to your research on the different phases that the corporations went through in terms of trying to integrate sustainability within their business, did you find some corporations that were successful? And was this a surprising result? How have people responded to this? Because there does seem to be a growing uh, body of research that suggests that actually it can be a win-win. Yes, I think there's... uh... Uh, a growing focus on research that that want to show a win-win, and a win-win here again is I think is de- determined on your definitions. Uh, and I definitely think if you if if corporations are slightly more energy efficient and that's a win, then we can definitely see win-wins. So we I guess take a more radical position in trying to follow corporations' commitments to these things. Uh, and so why we saw. Plenty of corporations doing good work and doing really good work. We saw a lot of committed people in this organization trying to do the absolute best for the environment. I guess for us it comes back to uh, that that moment uh, when when there is no business case, and that will always come um, in any business where you scale down your uh, efficiency or invent new products. But that moment when that green promise is not necessarily driving more profit. Another problem is, of course, the short-termism of a lot of these corporations. The managers, they are operating on quite short-term business cases. Uh, You probably can see if if the CEO is really committed, they can probably take better green initiative in the sense they allow for a longer return on the investment. So uh, over a longer period of time, they're willing to see a win-win. And if you if you lift your eyes a bit towards the horizon and have a three-year uh, return on investment on in, on green initiatives in cooperation, you will see perhaps more of these win-wins. 
at the moment, a lot of them don't even justify that. So it is that the win-win is it requires even short term, and this is a complex problem we're facing. And I don't think even a three-year or five-year term uh, would suggest any wins for the environment. So when we talk about win-wins, I think we have diluted the idea of sustainability somewhat. And things also change, don't they? There's dy- dynamism, dy- dynamics of change that you hard to put down to one single thing, uh, you know, like a, a one particular cor- corporate activity, what you've got going on now uh, in, the, in, the, in the motor industry, for example, is a, you know, a, a complex of, of different factors interplaying, which just can create disruptive change rather than any one actor setting out necessarily to do that. Yeah, but I, I guess I think I think we're somewhat, and I'm definitely one of these. We are a bit blinded by this optimism, or maybe just the will to live in the sense of a, of a, of a good planet to live on. Because if you if you go back to just the motor industry you refer to, it hasn't really changed. How many percent of today's cars are electric? Uh, I mean, but these, these, the cars has looked exactly the same. And, and the, the diesel scandal also illustrated, um, the Volkswagen diesel scandal also illustrated the, really the nature of, of the beast. And I don't think the motor, uh, motor corporations are better or worse than any other. So this is the sort of dilemmas. They, of course, want to do things and sometimes they cheat a bit, uh, but also they also mostly want to make money because that's what they were invented them for and that's what the investors require and this is what the employees want. So it's not, uh, uh, the car hasn't done much for the last uh, uh, 100 years almost. I mean, they look the same and they are mostly driven by combustion engines and, and there's few add fossil fuels. This is this hasn't been a revolution. Well, it's a, it, it may it may well well how how that plays out, but the commitment of major companies to to go to electric cars and 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 they and you know they have their own questions as well how sustainable they are in themselves in terms of the production and, and so forth. But there does seem to be a, it's it's a, it's certainly an example that people trot out and people uh, talk about and, and some people optimistically believe that there is uh, a significant wave of change unfolding as we speak. How much has happened? Yes. Yeah, but sorry, sorry. But say even now, we we all from tomorrow want to drive around Teslas. Absolutely, absolutely. It doesn't solve the problem because you still need to sell more and more and more Teslas. So unless you you then have no fossil fuel in the production and the energy goes into the Tesla is not fossil fuel, you haven't solved the problem. Well, it's this question about growth, isn't it? It comes back to this question of economic growth and it comes back to uh, organizations that are uh, optimized to to, to grow and and organizations that are funded by organizations, by investors that are looking for growth. And in a sense, we all are in the sense that our pensions and all the investments and so forth are tied into that. And it is quite interesting, I guess, to see what happens when people are confronted with the trade-off between growth and uh, environmental actions, which is a, a, a whole other area, I guess. Um, but yes, I mean, this question of fit for purpose. So I guess in a sense, you're saying that the corporation is, is great at doing certain things. It's not fit for purpose in dealing with the key uh, environmental sustainable issues that we're facing at the moment. What what kind of maybe we just come back to this again? What kind of organisations? I'd be interested in, a little bit in, in your thoughts there. I I, I know in Sweden uh, certainly um, uh, a, a more social democratic model and and and, and you know, some of the Scandinavian countries a particularly good track record uh, with respect to the environment. Do you see some exemplars there? Are there countries that 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 are you you you, you see you know reinventing government or bringing in new government initiatives, finding ways that that works? Yeah, no. Uh, I, I wish I, I wish what you said would give me some comfort. Um, I, I don't really necessarily think that you know S- Sweden, with many other uh, Scandinavian countries, has, has turned quite a lot towards uh, the, the marketization of different aspects of society. And I think you perfectly illustrated the problem when you mentioned the pensions. We all are invested in. Uh, the continuation of corporate capitalism. And that's why it's so hard to shift it, because we're all going to be losers. If we're just a few rich bankers or something that, you know, at the moment has media against them, if, if or a few rich investors, 
if they were the only from loose, we would see a revolution against corporations now. We're not going to see that because they are ingrained in all our investments, in all our aspects of society. So when looking for alternatives, I, I guess it's really looking at alternatives that at the moment goes at, beside uh, 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 what we can see as a form of corporate capitalism. Uh, so we have communities perhaps engaging in with each other and, and uh, uh, energy communities owning up their own energy in, in Germany and Denmark, where the communities themselves organize and own their energy. Uh, then there is no profit imperative, there is just an imperative to make sure that they can keep the lights on and have a decent life. So these kind of movements, uh, and, and this will take time, but I think we need to develop them at the same time as we continue with the system. So when, when we realize that we have enough strength in our other alternative forms of organizing, communities or co-ops or um, city-owned or community-owned uh, energy, food and so on, we, we can we can make that shift without really stopping stop stopping everything because uh, that's I guess the, the, what everyone is scared of uh, is that idea that there's going to be a, a disruption that's going to be violent or uh, which is highly problematic. So I think what we start need to start doing is supporting alternative organizational form than corporate capitalism. And so when we need to shift that these alternative ways of, of dealing with things and alternative ways for us to live that's not going to make a disruption. So that we, instead of identifying with a corporate brand, we identify with other community relations than, than the, our consumption. Because at the moment today, most of us, me included, identify a lot with the corporate brands. We This is not just an exchange. This is really who we are as human beings. We are the, the phones and the clothes we wear. We identify with the cars we drive. Uh, I think we also need to shift now that human psyche and start identifying with other social relations that is not corporate capitalist driven. Yes, this question of the values and we talked about the influence of organizations to some degree and the whole neoliberal agenda which has um, been uh, well, certainly we've had, had had a couple of decades of, and some some people believe that we're we are seeing some 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 changes there, and some questions in the, the IMF starting to issue different kinds of uh, publications, use different kind of language, talking about uh, neoliberalism and so forth. Yes, I, I also I think yeah, I think you're right in that we see some more skepticism towards that. This, I yeah. mean, both 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 the major parties on, in most liberal democracies moved towards a centre where the centre was neoliberalism. So that goes, for example, maybe in the UK, but also in this, in these classical social democratic countries, they moved far towards uh, marketization and uh, in in sorting out their policies. And we also see an almost an impossibility to for re redistribution today. So. Part of why we're also looking for corporations is because we cannot any longer look to, to for government for funding. Yes, yes. Uh, so, so with with the incorporation of, of, of the government, I mean, for, it's impossible to have for any government to raise the tax with five to ten percent, even in well-functioning society. It's just not realistic. They've been vote, voted out immediately to just to, to suggest that. All right, even even middle-income earners can easily deal with another 5% and try to redistribute these, these, these uh, through normal tax system. It's impossible to imagine that because we, we are so committed to having two uh, holidays uh, using you know, some of the air carriers. We are committed to having two cars per family. So I'm not talking about, of course, those in society that are the most vulnerable. I'm talking to, to the, mid, mid, the big, big midsection of society that easily can handle this if they're just willing to change lifestyle. But we're not. Yes, we're all involved in it together, and I know that some uh, some of the academics, uh, Kevin Anderson for one, uh, climate change academic, talking about um, an activist talking about the flying to conferences and the, 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 the if you look at the consumption pattern of the you know top ten twenty percent and compare that with you know average levels, uh, you could ha ha see, see see some pretty dramatic impact that that the top the wealthiest 
portions of society um, actually have to pay. How important do you think carbon pricing is? And is that a reflection of the commitment of uh, governments uh, to, to, to really dealing with some of the, uh, well, so-called externalities, but the climate change and environmental problems we face? Yeah, I think uh, carbon pricing is, uh, for me, a market mechanism that is, is designed uh, around the market. And for me, that still supports the, the current trajectory. It does not necessarily completely alter the trajectory, unless you have a really, really, really tough cap. But at the moment, we don't, we're not looking at any tough tough caps in these carbon pricing or carbon taxations. We're rather looking at market schemes uh, where there is still potentiality for growth, which for me is, is, is not really within what we need to do to keep this planet at, at a healthy level. So for me, carbon pricing uh, is not discussed in a way that really uh, really is in according to what is required. If there was a cap, that suggests that 80% of the fossil fuel would stay in ground. Sure, I could support that. But then comes another problem. Uh, that means very few rich countries, or rich corporations, rich individuals can be able to pay for this. But those most vulnerable in any society or the most vulnerable societies is not. So for me, the question you asked me around what, how, how these organizations look like, what kind of organizations do we need? To, to foster and as human beings, both in terms of individual freedom, but also in terms of solidarity. Uh, so, and I don't think any serious scholars in this is going to back to some form of state planning companies, but we still need to look at alternative forms of organization that does not mean corporate capitalism. Avoiding that binary, because as soon as you criticize corporate capitalists, you, 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 know, you get the communist hit back at you. But there is a range of different ways we can organize us and have done in throughout history. I mean, the, the time on, on Earth for corporate capital is, is very short. We have other firm, firm forms of organizing. And I'm not saying they were good, but maybe they can be developed. How can we develop cooperatives to deal with some of these problems? How can we develop communities to deal with some of these problems? B Corps in that sense. Maybe not, what are, what are, what are the good things about B Corps? How, how would the next version of that look like? Yes, yes. Um, it's a, a, quite a challenging uh, agenda to uh, think through these questions and to, 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 as you say, need an act of imagination. Uh, to to to, to uh, an act of radical imagination to think of some solutions and think of new ways forward and I suppose to be willing to try them and be willing to to to, to fail as well but to w willing to create an ecology of different kinds of organisations. Um, I, I want the question I was going to ask you before, and this is the question I was going to ask you before. Now there, there are questions about the degree to which um, you've raised questions about the degree to which. Uh, sustainability and uh, sustainability initiatives can be profitable for co corporations. I, I guess not necessarily uh, on an isolated basis, but on an ongoing basis, that a sustainability strategy would generate continually growing profits over time. I guess there are the other side of the question is as well is that the other side of the coin is that if you look at nature, you could say it's one of the last uncommodified spaces and what the risk is here the massive sums of money going into the that are required for the sdgs for example the massive sums of money that are required for the new energy solutions that essentially that if it's corporations that are going to be the agents of uh, development of these new new solutions that we're just going to see an increasingly intense commodification of the last outpost maybe before space I completely agree with that analysis, and I think we are seeing that. I mean, in the UK, you have that nature market task force, and we see that in all types of countries and associations are trying to come up with a number for the environment. So how many billions are the bees in the UK worth in terms of their pollination of both crops for eating, but also for flowers and so on? So if we put a price on bees... Uh, maybe we can save them because if they have a value we can save them 
But that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question because I spoke to Cameron Hepburn at, at at Oxford University about this, and he said that this is just quite similar to what you do in the health system. You know, you have to make these assessments. You put a value on a human life. It's not that you're actually valuing the human life, but you use it for assessments of the kinds of medical interventions that you can you can actually provide. So it's really just a guidance mechanism. It's not actually saying that you're going to be you know turning the the human body into some kind of market. Well, yes and no. That is, if you think that language is completely neutral, it is not a problem. But if you, lang- if you think language is performative in the sense of if we say something, uh, that will also form our thinking and our discussions. So if you start putting a price on things, that could then start informing the decisions. And we can also see then how we can evaluate decisions based on these pricing. So I, I think it's a bit more problematic in that. And that is some of these languages we've seen in creeping into other discourses among health, but also education, um, where, where st- things start may, uh, uh, evaluating money. And then eventually does those monetary terms, they're so good because they're comparative. You can measure them. Uh, you, you, it's quite easy to take decisions on them com- compared to the complexity of values. So if you think about a plurality of value systems, the monetary value system is just one, but we can also see an alternative. Uh, just an example would be the legal system. Here, value is not deemed in monetary terms, is deemed in the legal jurisdiction. So whether something is right, it's not based on money, it's based on, on the, the justice of, the, uh, of the, your, the, the law system in place. So we can then see countries now starting to give um, nature rights. You know, we have corporations defending in, in, in courts of law by uh, when they are not even a natural product, they're, they're invention of us, they're defended by lawyers, and perhaps soon we will see nature being defenders of lawyers. So that's an alternative value regime we can look at. How can we make sure that these are, are given rights to ensure that they are, uh, you know, they can do their job for the planet? That's very interesting. I, I won't talk about the drones that I read about, which are being used now to uh, in, 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 as a substitute for bees. <laughs> yes. yeah, I mean, you can see how then, if it's, more, if it's cheaper to come up with a drone than bee, why would you want bees? Well, it's, it's, it's a very uh, scary prospect. And I think our kind of language has this performative effect that... The way we talk about things form our thinking, form our arguments. And then even if it started innocent, it, these numbers never are innocent when they're used to rationalize decisions. Right. And to what extent have, have you had a response from the academic environment? Have people said, well, this just doesn't make sense in light of what we all believe at the moment. <laughs> this goes yeah, against it or, 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 or actually, you know, otherwise. Yeah, I think there's been both. I mean... Uh, the peer review process in, in the journal, Academy of Management Journal, is, is, is really solid. Uh, and the reviewers of our paper they did not necessarily want to hear the message, I think, because it's an, it's an uncomfortable message, uh, message, especially if you work in a business school. So I, I think they pushed us well in, in trying for us to uh, explain our, our research findings uh, and our arguments. And I think... Uh, after that now been explained, I think, in, in, some, in some detail, I think the, the business community is not super surprised, even though, you know, we don't want to hear it, but we sort of know it's true. Um, so I, I think, uh, and then there are different types of journals. So when in Nature, the journal wants to summarize this in, in the journal, they were quite willing to take on the whole message. Uh, when we, when Harvard Business Review wanted to summarize it, maybe there was more discussion of whether is this really what we want to say, or that didn't sense us in any absolute no way. But there was this sense of maybe we can frame it a bit more welcoming towards the corporation. So are you depressed? by the <laughs> prospects that you know getting to the heart of this question you know you don't doubt the scale the, the challenges that we face and yet the trajectory the, the direction of travel and the trajectory and the pace of tra- 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 travel um, that's another matter 
Yes, no, I, I, I'm, I'm very bleak in terms of, of, of what's going to happen. I, I cannot see us staying under four degrees warming, and we know what we don't know, but we can imagine what kind of Earth this is, is, is delivering. So, but I'm not as cynical. I'm not depressed. Uh, I'm working with a term called hope without optimism, in the sense of how we as societies can learn to live within these means. Uh, together in peaceful societies where we can live in a more troubled world, but also perhaps looking at other ways to satisfy our uh, need for social relations and so on. What's on your agenda next? So we, I'm involved in a, quite a few really interesting projects, at least for me. Uh, so two, two big projects. One is... Um, a grant I just got from the Australian government in trying to understand the energy transition. So, how uh, both follow what arguably is the necessary destruction of the coal industry uh, and how, how that uh, how they unfold in, 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 in during their phasing out. So we can see, especially in the coal industry in Australia, used to be a quite homogeneous group. They were always were on the same side, but now we can see they start, start, start fighting for survival and attack each other. So for BHP has uh, moved out of some of the big industry associations. You can see the infighting in coal starting, realizing, you know, we can't all be friends anymore. It's, you know, the survival of the fittest in selling those fossil fuel left in the ground. So on one hand, we want to follow the coal industry now the next few years and see how they politically try to shape the environment to, to make sure that they can continue saying, say, selling coal. On the other hand, we're also going to look at the renewable industry in Australia uh, to see how, uh, how they are trying to, to gain uh, an uptake at community level. So how can solar, which would be fantastic for Australia, I mean, it could easily survive on solar alone, and wind, how these things can t be taken up in communities, but also how, the, how uh, the, the prospects politically in making these movements stronger. So this is one project following the energy transition over time. The other project we do is looking at, at uh, climate change adaptation. So when we talk about climate change, we often talk about the future. But climate change is now. It's, it's already changing the world. Uh, so we're looking at places where climate change is at the moment negotiated and discussed. So one of them is the Great Bear Reef. Uh, half the reef, reef is, 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 uh, was bleached just out of the year. And we're looking at, if you continue as we do, we, no, we could be out without uh, the largest... Uh, organism on the planet be dead within the next couple of decades. So already now we can see how the tourist industry on the reef is trying to, you know, negotiate their future. So a few tourist industry go, oh, last chance tourism, see the reef before it's dead. Other tourist industries start suing climate change scientists because they're providing messages that they think stop the tourists from coming. And then, um, so we can see how these areas now, where in even the Western world, where climate change is negotiated, adaption is going on. And this, of course, is happening in much more catastrophically in, uh, in, in, uh, in more, more vulnerable societies at the moment. But our focus is on, on, you know, on corporations and how, how, they've, how they involve in, in society. Well, you've got a full agenda there. And I yes. wish, wish you the very, very best. Exciting. Very exciting. Very interesting area. I wish you the very best of success with that. And thank you so much for taking your time today to to uh, invo get involved in this uh, spirited debate and discussion and share your research and ideas. It's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you so much, Fergal. I really appreciate you taking the time and inviting me on. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.